I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. Happy holidays, everyone. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. So we are not going to be taking a traditional break from Recovery Bites throughout the holidays. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be randomly releasing some extra episodes, episodes that have never been heard before between now and the end of the year. Happy holidays, everyone. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. Are we in for a treat? We've got a team here talking with us today. This is going to be fantastic. I want to introduce all of you to Vanessa Scaringi and Catherine Garland. Both of you, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you you so much for having us, Karen. I am so excited to have you two here. I'm so excited to talk about what we're going to talk about with uh, eating disorders and attachment theory and relational theory, all this stuff. Before we do, can each of you tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves and and who you are? Sure. Um, I'm Vanessa Scaringi. I'm a licensed psychologist in Austin, Texas. Um, and I co-own Calm Counseling. I co-own it, co-own it with Kate. Um, and we primarily work with eating disorders and um, work with folks uh, in a, on a long-term basis. We do groups and we have, um, I think we have 10 therapists that work with us now. So we have a collaborative team and we really get to dive deeply into cases. So I'm really excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today too. Great. Great. Kate, can you introduce yourself? Yes. So I'm Catherine or Kate Garland. Uh, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and supervisor. Uh, Vanessa and I, as she said, co-own Calm and we are mothers of growing, but kind of small children. Um, So kind of wrestling the balance between group practice, ownership, being therapists and having families. Yeah. And this is this is pretty much right up the alley of what we're going to start talking about. So I would love to hear who either one of you that wants to start. What we're looking at today is a combination of, I'm assuming when we talk about attachment theory, we're talking about early attachment with, you know, mother, with parent, whoever. And then we're also talking about the disconnect that people have had opposite of attachment due to the pandemic and the eating disorder. And so I am just going to say, will either of you start? Because right now my heart hurts thinking about how isolated people have been throughout the pandemic and how we are relational beings 
and the eating disorder thrives in isolation. And so I'm just going to stop rambling and let one of you two go. Should, um, should I ramble on Vanessa? I would like, <laughs> ramble on. I would like, Kate, can you ramble? Can you share a little bit about like, you know, I know that the two of you are giving a talk at IADEP and what, what got you into this? Let's start there. What got yeah. you into this, this study? I think you said it really well that, um, over the last few years, it's been, um, kind of, it's been heartbreaking, but also a privilege to be able to, I, I was saying this to a client of mine recently that all of this disconnection has been happening, especially due to the pandemic, but also just kind of culturally, um, there's kind of a lack of a healthy society right now. Um, whether that's the influence of technology or, um, just a general change in the environment um, politically or in terms of our um, sensitivities to different issues that have been going on for years and years, but they've, they've come kind of more to the forefront. I was saying to this client, um, this disconnection, I feel like through the pandemic as a therapist, we had these windows into everyone was experiencing the same isolation and there was kind of a, an opportunity in that for us as therapists to not feel as alone in it because it was so visible. Um, but you know, everyone else was kind of uh, having the same, you would hear the same content that they were all saying, I'm so lonely. I'm so scared. There's so much uncertainty and disillusionment about the future um, that it really brought uh, to the forefront. I think for Vanessa and I, we were having these conversations about you know, it's not even just early, uh, obviously it is like eating disorders are so complex. It is family relationships and early attachments, but it's also our attachment to the world right now. And, um, the insecurity of our attachment to community and, uh, to a future that, that we can be, um, optimistic about or feel some sense of, um, what our role is. So that really played into our discussions around wanting to have this topic, wanting to bring this topic to a presentation in some form or have a, a larger discussion about it because the, obviously the self-regulation or the affect re regulation um, that occurs with eating disorders is something that we feel very strongly. Um, it should be part of the treatment. Um, and there I go. There's my ramble. Do you want to add to <laughs> ramble on with me, Vanessa? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, when you were talking, I was thinking about, I think Karen, you mentioned this um, eloquently, but the idea of just when there's emptiness, that's when the eating disorder comes in. And, you know, that emptiness has just been so profound for so long. Um, and then the pandemic just really highlighted that, that I just think it's important for us to be talking about what to, what to put there. And, you know, one of our central points in our, um, talk and just what we've been talking about is that relational therapy can be something that we use, you know, that we have this relationship with someone who we get very close to for years and years. And yes, we work on behaviors and, and really changing um, how the relationship with food and bodies, um, are is whatever. Um, but we, beyond that, 
really start to um, change how we connect with ourselves and other people through that relationship. You know, for some reason, what did come to my mind, and I hope this isn't very much out of left field, but talking about relationships, talking about the pandemic isolation, it made me think of, I, I ha- I'm a very visual person, so I picture people in my mind um, alone in the pandemic. Now, there's a few things. First of all, um, I know for myself, I always use my own example. My eating disorder was a way for me to quiet out all the other fears that I had in the world and all the other anxieties. So then put on top of it a pandemic and people with eating disorders are getting even, that are struggling with eating disorders are even becoming more isolated and more focused on things that do not they do not value. How do I say this? Look, give me a second. I know what I'm trying to say. This is where social media, I think there's really positive things that, about social media. And I think there's really detrimental things about social media. So imagine you're alone. You, you are not in relationship with anybody. And all you're doing is scrolling through social media. And you don't want to think about the pandemic or politics or anything else. So you focus even more on these 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 ideals that, that are these, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Oh, (laughs) all the superficial. Yeah. 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 And so what do we do? Here's the million dollar question. What do we do now? So one of the thing, one of the pieces of our talk is kind of talking about just that, this hyper reality that people are sort of living in, right. Where it, it becomes almost a simulation of real life. Um, and how, in our work, we're sort of coaxing people back into being in real relationships and finding the value in that, despite the fact that it can be messier and uh, less predictable, all the things that you're talking about in terms of kind of how eating disorders attempt to block out the chaos. They want to provide order. They want to provide um, a sense of stability and but they also create that isolation and disconnection that you're talking about and how it can be difficult to convince people to come out of that and come um, to a place that yes, maybe feels more uncertain, but also the depth of connection and uh, the richness of being close to other people. Um, It's a hard thing right now. It's people are kind of, you know, dipping their toe back into the world. And it's scary. Vanessa, I'm not sure if you were about to say something or did I, I just make that up in my mind? No, no, I was. Yeah. I always look like on the edge of my seat, but um, I was thinking about how lucky I was um, to be in relationship with, I do a group for um, folks that are in any point in their recovery for eating disorders. And it's a long-term interpro- interpersonal process group. And um, I think we all felt lucky to be already established, have that place, um, of connection. And I, I've seen so much change happen in that group. And, um, I think that that's sort of the antidote to the isolation. Like Kate said, you ha- we have to coax people to really dive completely in. I think people I think there's a buy-in, you know, for the most part, if someone shows up for therapy, like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta challenge this eating disorder in, to some degree, but to get totally messy and dive totally in is another story. Um, and so I felt really fortunate that folks had already been in that process um, and and really used that tool throughout. I mean, gosh, we met remotely and 
people were late prior to the pandemic all the time, or they had to miss or whatever, but every week I like (laughs) so much more consistency. Well, I love the idea of getting messy because life does get messy, but when you're doing life on zoom, you can clean life up really quickly for a meeting and then our life is messy again. So it's it's about how do you get back into the world and be okay that not everything is going to be looking like it does on a Zoom meeting for an hour a day or you know it's it's we, you can hide people with eating disorders or actually with anything but people this is why I think I I I didn't think I was going to be able to connect with my clients through Zoom. I'm a very touchy-feely. I like people in person. I was very happy that I was able to. But clients can hide behind Zoom. They can hide. I, I can't see. Not that not that appearance is anything to do with it. Well, not that appearance is, is a hallmark of an eating disorder. But I can't even see weight fluctuations. You know what I mean? I can't see if they're, you know, there's so much that with social media and everything being remote, people can hide behind. It's almost like another layer than the eating disorder. And I don't know if either of you have any thoughts about that. I was thinking about restriction. You know, this came up a lot at the start of the pandemic with folks. Um, You know, there was such a, like, we needed to restrict our contact with people. And, you know, I remember challenging clients to, you know, maybe you still can go to the grocery store, you know, make it safe. Like there was such a hunkering down and I think getting people back in the office or back to, you know, connecting with people, um, can be another form of restriction. And so really challenging the, the eating disorder or that restrictive nature to want it to look a certain way all the time. And to like relinquish the control in that um, and name it, you know, just talking about it more openly is, is a big deal. It's hard to do. Which I think, you know, obviously we, we all as therapists thought about that so much, like what's the quality of these zoom sessions versus being in person. And it seems like we essentially learned you can do really great relational therapy, especially in the midst of a pandemic through telehealth. Um, and there is a different opportunity to hide for sure because of the limitation of that just physical distance. Um, but it did, it required something, you know, the thing that I noticed so much going kind of more from doing more telehealth to being back in the office was the intensity of, of eye contact and face, right? That like on Zoom, relationally, we were tracking each other in this kind of like instant to instant way um, that provided its its own kind of uh, way of getting connected and being able to uh, like what's going on with you something I saw that little twitch or like looking off to the side in your eye Um, whereas in the office you know it's sort of a shared energy as well that kind of gives you those cues Um, but it would feel it felt so uh, as a therapist like a relief to sit down and just be in the energy and not that um, kind of intensity that Zoom required, but that was in its own way about the relationship, right? And just being, it was like, you know, standing a foot away from your client all the time. Like there are pros and cons of both. I think that 
this is the new way, right? There will always be some hybrid model and we have to find a way to relationally connect through it. Can I actually take a step back and ask one of you to explain relational theory? Like, I feel like we're talking about it. Like, we know it. We're like, blah, blah, blah. There might be people out there that are like Googling it right now because they don't understand what it, what it is. And it's so important. And I probably should have started with that question. But here we are. So can one of you, one of you share, explain to the listeners what it, what it's all about? Well, it means so many things, right? It's like, it's, it's so hard to define because you can be, you can be a CBT practicing, primarily practicing therapist and do relational work. You can be a psychoanalyst and do relational work. Like it, essentially, I think what it means to me and in our practice is always doing your own work, always being connected to the transference, counter-transference element of relationships that you are mutually sharing in this relationship with your client and you are not a blank slate like to them or to yourself in that moment. Um, and so that's, that's really what we mean. People can do relational work and have differences of opinion on self-disclosure as a therapist. Like, I, I don't think that it means that you're necessarily kind of, um, sharing all of your life with your clients, but you are, in terms of connectedness, you are there with them. You are there in the room and you are a participant. There's a mutuality in that relationship. I think just to piggyback on what Kate said, um, that we, that clients know that we hold them too, that we're not just, oh, I, you know, I, I come into your office and I talk to you for an hour once a week, but like, they know that we're a part of their lives and they can, hold us, um, and keep us there when, you know, sort of trying to, um, redefine that internal inner critic that it can be replaced with thoughts and, and talks that we might have in session with them. I know that when I'm in session with clients, I, like you said, I'm, I'm right there with them. I, I go along with them in the session and that allows them to take internalize me, and I don't mean me as like Karen Lewis, I mean like me as a voice that helps them, you know, rem remembering certain things to when they walk out of the office. It isn't that clients walk out and the there's no there's no connection to the session until the following week. They carry and and that is so important when you're struggling with eating disorders because people feel so alone. Nobody is there. Nobody understands me or what I'm going through or how hard this is. So to be in relationship with your clinician is invaluable. It is, it is critical. I think that that's very well put. I think yeah. we like to think of it as it's really not solution focused. It's kind of experience focused and having the reparative experiences exactly what you just described that they're they know that you're holding them through all of all of the week until that you see them again that's what feels so lacking culturally nowadays is that the interactions that we can have with folks like whether whatever social media or, or in other places um doesn't have doesn't feel like it has that depth that we can create with folks and in our offices and in, individually and in groups I think that's also a part of it too, is that we're, we're sort of helping them 
um, try to cultivate this for themselves outside of session. And I think that's something that most people, when they're struggling with an eating disorder, crave is that depth and connection. Because I know for myself and I know for most of my clients, very, very sensitive feeling beings. Like I was a very, and I don't say this as a, I say this, actually I say this as a positive. I'm a very sensitive human being. I crave depth. I, I actually thought there was something wrong with me because I, I couldn't understand why my friends didn't want the same kind of depth and everything felt so superficial, which made me feel even more alone. And so the depth, when you when when we connect with the client to that depth, that in and of itself is healing because they're craving, they're craving, or at least again, I did. That's what I was craving was just that deep, connection and understanding, non-judgmental, you know, as Carolyn Costin always says, says truth without judgment, which you can really only do truth without judgment when you feel seen by somebody, when you feel like you're in a deep relationship with somebody, because you trust that person and you trust that they're still there for you, even if they're saying something that feels judgmental. Do you know what I'm saying? Am I making sense? Or am I just the safety? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the title of this episode is going to be a whole lot of rambling. <laughs> <laughs> On a really awesome topic that's like it's it's deep just to even ramble about, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Kate, were you going to say something? I just think that's appropriate that it's that's essentially like we aren't very prescriptive in our work with clients or um or maybe I should say scripted. Um, and that, that you're, you sort of trust the process and trust where things go. And so this feels very much in line with that. <laughs> We're trusting the process. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about attachment? And, you know, I, I know, and again, I hate to be like, I know the name of your IADEP talk is, but it starts with attachment wounds, I think it is. Yeah. And, and then it goes on, forgive me, I don't remember the rest of the title, but let's talk about attachment and eating disorders. And I don't know which one of either one of you can start. I can talk a little bit about it. Um, yeah, so we, we titled it attachment wounds and we're sort of referencing, you know, early childhood and, um, and different wounds, not even just in the family, but like even what you said, Karen, about feeling different in the world and needing different things and how those sort of early wounds carry through. And then you've got this um, culture right now that feels very just lacking in depth and connection. And so just breeds so much space for there to be negative coping strategies to handle all of it, especially when you're, you know, I, I, really consider myself a sensitive person as well. And like, if you're that way, you need it. And so if you're not getting it, didn't get it early on, and especially aren't getting it in culture, there's um, just so much space for there to be in any negative coping uh, skill, just throw it in, but especially an eating disorder that um, sort of uh, allures folks because it feels like there's um, depth and connection on the other end, possibly, you know, if they're being perfect or what have you. So, um, you know, I'm not really going into any kind of attachment theory, but that's sort of what we were thinking when we wanted to really talk more about this. Um, yes. And not to sound, um, Pollyanna ish or too optimistic, but I think that part of the discussion is that there is sort of a changing wave 
societally. Like we've hit this point where we, we took it too far. We jumped the shark with technology. We over-relied on that being something that was going to save us or protecting ourselves through, you know, well-being and, you know, and that turning into eating disorders or, um, I think what I'm really trying to say is at least in I'm in my early forties, I feel like the last 20 years has been kind of culturally, there was this sort of, uh, sarcastic, ironic kind of focus, um, about how to approach things. And this younger generation, it does feel like they're leaning into sort of an earnestness and it is a reaction to some of that, that there was a feeling of things being so individualistic and so um, self-regulated that people are yearning for community. They're yearning for deeper relationships. Um, what you're alluding to that feeling of just like, is it just me or is it everybody that really like wants to be, more feeling, more open about those things. Um, that, that excites me. That that feels like, okay, so maybe all of this kind of like hitting up against the rocks and really, you know, getting us into um, a, a dark spot, maybe that results in some positive uh, shift into deeper relationships. I'm curious if either of you could speak to what you've noticed since the pandemic has started when, like when I was referencing earlier, like, you know, when the pandemic hit, so many people were like, I just, I don't even want to, I want to pretend it's not there. So again, I'm just going to go online. What are you noticing people were struggling with more when the pandemic hit, when it came to things like social media? Like, is it unrealistic ideal body images? Is it that they were being bombarded by diets? Is it that, like, what, did you notice anything shift? I would say a lot of the clients that I saw who were in their teens, 20s, maybe early 30s, um, had a sense from social media that other people's lives were just continuing on, um, that they were, you know, maybe they saw something uh, that, that was like someone doing something and it was sort of like, oh, I should be doing things too. Are we, are we doing things again? Or a sense of just being kind of robbed of valuable years, which um, further isolated them and maybe uh, led them to feel that kind of difference that really inspires more of the eating disorder because there's your old friend, right? There's your, there's your companion um, in this lonely spot in the world. So I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were kind of heading toward. Yeah. Yeah. Vanessa, did you notice anything? Yeah. I think a lot more space for comparison um, in a very curated way, which is we all know a recipe for disaster for anyone. And then you layer in an eating disorder. And like Kate said, it's just, um, why not just stick with the old friend? You know, why this is, this feels safer. Um, maybe I'll even achieve that kind of um, faulty logic. I also know that for me, that was my deep relationship, my relationship that I had with my eating disorder. That was, that was deep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I say that sarcastically, but that was where I could feel all my pain. Think about things, you know what I'm saying? Like, so when, when we're, when we're trying to 
connect and we can't and we go inward and then the eating disorder it's it's just it is the perfect perfect storm yeah and it was I mean it was such an isolating time for I mean if you lived alone it was isolating if you had children it was if there were always people around it was isolating in just a very different way and um you know that loneliness I think yeah created a lot of space for people to double down on their eating disorder and if you already had, I mean, just to sort of bring in what you were saying about attachments, if you already had sort of a disorganized attachment style with your family of origin or avoidant or anxious or any of them, right, in in an insecure manner, then it just exacerbated all of those things. And, you know, obviously we in treatment of eating disorder, when there's a very acute state of being you need to have those direct interventions, right? You need to have um, things that are more uh, based in kind of a cognitive behavioral change. Um, but over the years, and you know, Vanessa and I work with people who have been in recovery for 10 years, have been, it's, there's always that relational piece that can be really helpful in kind of sorting through like, you haven't used behaviors in three and a half years. And here you are having all these fantasies about going back to your eating disorder. Let's talk about what came up when you were at Thanksgiving dinner, what, you know, whatever those things are, which I think is, you know, obviously that's, um, it's a long, we, we view it as a, a long-term treatment and, um, that there's all these interconnected things. It's not just one thing. It's not just treating the behavior. It's about, where does that stem from? Well, I think when when we're talking also about insecure attachments um, or, you know, disorganized attachments or avoidant attachments, you know, ambivalent, like all the different forms of attachment, if you were then in quarantine, shall we say, with all these people that you have all of these insecure attachments with there was nowhere to go and so how, like how do you even talk about that like the people that were were i'm going to say the word trapped and i don't know if that's yeah. the right word but in these these really insecure relationships and that's all they had mm -hmm. and i don't know if either of you have anything to say about that yeah, I was, as y'all were talking, I was thinking about how lucky I feel and felt that I had um, clients that I was in relationship with for a long time. And so, you know, one, one way to achieve a relational approach with clients is to sort of open yourself up to being in touch outside of session. And so I would get calls from clients when they were trapped in their car or whatever, or we would have session in their car to get untrapped. I felt like I actually probably put myself out there even more for folks to be in touch with me because of how, I mean, discombobulating it is to have, yes, an avoidant attachment style and then be trapped with four roommates. Um, and so I, I opened myself up a little bit more to that during that time. Um, and we would talk about it a lot. Hey, you called me, you just left a message. You know, it sounded like you were really having a hard time, but you didn't use the behavior. So, I mean, that's, that's great. I think I, got a lot more of that during that time you reached out yeah like that yeah. like that is like incredible is it is it too much for me to ask for either of you to talk about the different attachment styles 
because I, I, again, I feel like it's like, like, oh, can you talk about what relational theory is like? <laughs> I'm doing everything backwards today. Sorry, everyone. Can you talk about the attachments? Yeah. When, when you're talking about someone who has an avoidant attachment style, and we're using these terms really loosely because we kind of fall under many umbrellas. <laughs> like last week, maybe I had some avoidant attachment style pieces coming up now this week, maybe I have some more anxious ones coming up. But when you're talking about somebody who has some avoidant tendencies, oftentimes you might see restriction, right? It could look like restriction. If that avoidance of food kind of helps to regulate oneself, to feel more in control or at ease, um, then you might have someone with a disorganized attachment style that maybe they are spitting and chewing, or they are binging and purging. There's kind of a doing and undoing. There's a, a difficult state of kind of being scattered inside ambivalent. You know, it could be ambivalent. It could be um, anxious. Like those things can kind of play out in different ways. Um, but we're just talking, we're not even saying here's an exact science. If you have an avoidant attachment style, you're going to be a restrictive eater because you might not, you might be avoiding through binging, you know, that you might be numbing out feelings in that way. We, it's more of just a curiosity around how do these ways of being in the world, oftentimes uh, set at an early time in your life, that foundation affect your relationship with food? Are there things that you're searching for in your relationship with food and your body to help regulate that we can find other ways to help you feel safe or to help you feel secure? And I would say that's in a nutshell. Just to streamline that even a little bit too, um, when we think of avoidant, the, the emotional piece, you know, not learning at an early age how to tolerate emotions or how to be with someone. And so, you know, avoiding or going, you know, leaning into someone who doesn't want to be leaned into, like just using those relationships now to kind of try to um, deal with what had happened in the past. So that happens, that plays out with food just all the time. And it also plays out in our relationships. Yeah. And so as we, as you were saying, like if, if we have a certain personality traits and we don't understand it, I like the one, the example that you said, and I'm paraphrasing, like leaning on people when they don't want to be leaned on. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing. We're, we're going to do it over and over again, get a negative response back from that person. And then self-soothe through the eating disorder and then want to go back to that person for attending. I mean, it's a vicious cycle and, and it's, it can be really, it can be debilitating. It can be paralyzing. And we can, the, you know, the, the thing that's so cool about being in relationship with someone and therapy is that we can help them to like, just plan to see that, Hey, you did that thing again. Did you notice it this time? And maybe you did it with me or maybe you did it with someone else, but just to start trying to be more curious about when that's happening to slow down and, and really repair so that there's a move and a shift towards healthy, um, attachments. Our boundaries with people and our boundaries with food or our body, like those things are, that's, that's the key. Well, and again, I keep bringing up Carolyn. I, I I trained under Carolyn, so I I quote her quite a bit. You know, in her book, The Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder, there is an assignment in there because there's a lot of journaling assignments, and one of them is how is my relationship with food like my relationship with people? 
you know, and, and you, you start seeing the parallels. Am I restrictive with my emotions with people? Am I restrictive with my food? Do I, you know, gobble people, eat people up and then push them away? And do I binge and, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's very interesting to, to look at it from that perspective. I'm glad you brought her up because we should give her a lot of the credit for a lot of these thoughts, laid the foundation. Yes. Yeah, she, she absolutely did. I am sorry to say that we are going to have to end in a moment, but is there anything that either of you would like to say before we end that I didn't ask or anything you want to share? I think, um, I think I hit on this a little bit, but just group therapy, like I just can't speak more highly enough of that process for folks. Um, watching people who might have difficulty and attachment, you know, with people, but also with food and like taking up space. And for the work that we do with eating disorders, it just is so aligned in the recovery process. Um, just a plug for group therapy, I guess. Yeah. 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 I always say group therapy is like a small version of what you're like out in the world, mm-hmm. because if you, uh, if you quiet down when somebody talks over you in group, then that's, typically what what's happened it's a it's a microcosm that's typically what's happening in the world if you're always interrupting then that's typically so I love group work I think it's Mm -hmm. so applicable to so many things I'm sorry Kate were you going to say something oh I was just saying here here I I second that and group work I I also want to add in there doing my own being in my own group it's really hard and it's really hard because of exactly what you just said Karen that it it challenges us in ways to really look at those dynamics and how they are impacting us and other people I know that's what makes them so powerful I love it I want to thank the both of you for being here it has been really fun doing this this trio interview so I just again I want to say thank you Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.